Good morning. We're well into our way in a series on the book of Acts. If you'd like to be turned into Acts chapter 14, that's where we'll be this morning. You'll find that on page 923 if you happen to be using one of the pew Bibles, chair Bibles. And as we've been looking at the, uh, the book of Acts going through each, each week, we've been taking a look at the mission of God. We've been talking about the fact that God is on a mission, and he's on a mission to us, coming to us with the grace and mercy and healing and reconciliation of Jesus. And then consequently, he's also on a mission through us, as he takes us, his people, and then brings this message of hope, this person of Jesus, to the world around us. So he's on a mission with us and through us, and we're going to see that played out colorfully. Acts chapter 14 this morning. So let's pray together, and then we'll, uh, we'll read Acts 14. Please pray with me. Father, we pray that you would open up your word to us this morning and our hearts to your word. That you would show yourself to us. That you would reveal yourself even here, right now. Would we gain a bigger picture of you and of your glory, and would that captivate our hearts? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Picking up with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, whose witness to the word of his who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. And when the crowd saw what what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 
And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And when they had passed through Sidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. As we said, we've been talking about the mission of God, and here's what we're going to look at this morning. Just this simple point, that embracing the mission of God in our lives means giving ourselves to the glory of God. Okay, embracing the mission of God in our lives means giving ourselves to the glory of another, to the glory of someone other than ourselves. It means giving ourselves to the glory of God. Okay, now the first part of that is that we are called to embrace the glory of another. We're called to embrace the glory of God. Now the word, the word glory itself doesn't appear in this passage, but it is, it is the context in which this passage is happening. It is, it's the thing at stake under the surface here in this passage. Glory. Who's glory? Who is going to receive glory in this passage? Now if you're to look up the word glory in the Old Testament, you, you, you'd find that uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for glory has to do with weight. Something that's glorious is heavy, it's weighty, it has substance to it. And in the New Testament, the term for glory and glorify has to do with giving praise and honor, and it has to do with light and with radiance. Okay, so when we talk here about glory being the background of what's going on, something is going to be praised here. Something is going to be upheld as most central, most important. And what's it going to be? Westminster Confession of Faith, you may well be aware, the very first question it asks in the catechism, good Presbyterians, some of you guys grew up with this, you know what it says, you know, what, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose? What's the purpose of man? What's the purpose for which God created people? The answer is that they might glorify him and enjoy him forever. Okay, so what's our, what's our purpose to glorify God and enjoy him? And it's interesting the way the confession ties those two ideas together glorifying God and enjoying him, that those really can't be separated. Because the thing we glorify is the thing that's closest to our heart. Another way of saying that is the thing from which we derive the most satisfaction and give the most of our affection and our heart to. We're called to glorify God. And that's just frankly what happens in this passage, what we're going to see today, that God is the one that we're to glorify. That's what our lives are to be about. Okay, now I probably just lost some of you. Okay, because you're thinking, okay, we're supposed, to glorify, we're supposed to glorify God. So you have some enormous ego deficiency. And so he needs to create all of mankind just to continually tell him how good he really is. To bolster up his cosmic insecurities. Because you know what it's like when you're around people who very much demand glory for themselves. And how unbelievably annoying it is. And how you look at that person and you think, I can't believe you are so self-consumed. Of course, none of us do that ourselves, but we know people that do that. And here's the, here's the reason you feel that. Because you look at somebody else and you, and you see they're grasping for power, they're grasping for praise, they're grasping for your affirmation. And you think, you don't really deserve what you're asking for. You don't deserve the weight, the praise that you are trying to suck out of life around you. The problem for them is not that they think something needs to be glorified. The problem is the dissonance between their desire and thinking that they are the ones that can fill that. I remember a number of years ago, 
reading a book with a student, Matt, and we're, we're reading this book by John Piper, and it's called The Pleasures of God. One of the chapters is called The Pleasure of God in His Fame. That God takes pleasure in His name being glorified. Again. Does He, does he need our encouragement? Does He need our help? Well, Matt and I, as we were reading that chapter, we went to the same church, and one Sunday, that while we are reading that chapter, we went to church one, one Sunday morning, and a visiting singing group was there. And here's the song that they sang. God loves people more than anything. God loves people more than anything. And that song, maybe some of you have heard that song. The song, it's trying, to, it's trying to defend something great, which is God incredibly values people so much that he sends his son to come and rescue them. But for, for Matt and I, as we were reading this chapter, and we thought, God's glory in his fame, that song was profoundly wrong. That God doesn't love people more than anything. What does God love more than anything? He loves himself more than anything. Now, if we were to stop and think that surely that can't be right, what else would you put in its place? What should God value more than anything? God who knows everything, looks at the whole universe, what should he value more than anything else that exists? Wouldn't it have to be himself? And wouldn't it lessen God to put his affection on anything else? And let me ask a further question. What does our God want us to value? What we find out is God wants us to value the thing that is most beautiful, the thing that is most worthy, the thing that is most worth the grasp of our imagination, the thing that is most worth us spending our very lives in following. What God points to is the most weighty, the most worthy, the most praiseworthy thing is himself. And as the confession reminds us, we're to glorify God and enjoy him, and that is where our deepest enjoyment, in fact, will come, as we with God honor and appreciate and value the thing that is of most worth. But as you know, and as we experience, we are people who chase glory in lots of other things. Um, A week ago, some of us were watching the Super Bowl and uh, to see glory snatched out of the hands at the last couple minutes and going to another. And you saw that game and didn't go to bed early like I did. You saw the the glory being won. But here's, here's a quote I read in the paper the next day from one of the Patriots defensive linemen. It's disappointing. We came so close to being special. We are second class. Now, maybe this person, he says that with the completely understandable sorrow of losing the Super Bowl, or maybe it's something more. The things that we glorify, that draw our hearts, can they bear the weight that we put on it? Well, this idea, as we said, of glory is in the background here in this passage. It's sort of like the the background to those, those little flannel boards you had when you were a kid, and you put the trees on and the little people on. Well, that's, those are the events of this text, but the background on which everything is going is the question of who is going to receive the glory. And you see that question comes up here in Lystra when a man is healed and everybody is amazed. And what, what do they do? Well, they go and uh, start shouting in their own native tongue, one that, one that Paul and Barnabas don't speak. They start shouting, that, you know, it's Zeus and it's Hermes. They've, they've come into our town We need to offer sacrifices to them. Now, that might sound a little crazy to us, but there was a legend, a local legend at the time, and it's recorded in Ovid's book, The Metamorphoses, that that, uh, collection of poetry. From this region, Ovid wrote this collection about 50 years before the events of this text, but it stretched back into sort of the time of legend in this area that one day 
Zeus and Hermes came down in, in human form, and they traveled around as beggars, and they went from one house to the next looking for hospitality. And in each house they came to, they were, the door was shut to them until finally this old couple welcomed them into their home. And when they did that, they blessed this couple, and they sent a flood to destroy the homes and the lives of everyone who had turned them away. Okay, that's the local legend here. So when Paul shows up and he starts healing crippled people, they think it is Zeus and Hermes, and we'd better respond appropriately this time, right? So what do they do? Well, they're, they're speaking, and, and Paul and, and Barnabas, they don't understand what's being said, until finally they see the guy, the, the priest from the temple of Zeus, come walking down the, the path with these oxen that they're going to sacrifice, and they look around, and they suddenly realize what's going on. And so what do they do? Because here's the question for them. Who is going to receive the glory today? Who gets the glory for what's going on? And they look around and see this. Verse 15. 14 and 15. They rush out in the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? Stop. What are you doing? He calls the whole procession to a halt. And he proceeds to preach a sermon. And as he does this, as they step into the crowds, Paul and Barnabas, what do they do? They rend their garments. Take the front of their cloak and they just and they rip it. And for them in their cultural context, this was a sign of deep sorrow or deep mourning or the proper response of an observant follower of God when God's name is being blasphemed, when God's name is being made little, when something other than God is receiving the glory. So that's what they do. They run into the crowd, ripping their garments. This cannot be. Then in good preaching fashion, Paul proceeds to preach them a sermon. And here's what he says. He says, why are you doing this? We are men just like you. This is verses 15 through 17. He says, I come to tell you good news that you're to turn from these vain things to the living God. He says, in the past, God let you go your own way, but now things are different. A friend of mine told me, her story about a friend of mine this week who uh, they've had several financial challenges recently, and they went to their front door and, and opened it up, and, and there was an envelope with their name typed on the front and a little letter typed in, inside. And it was this anonymous note. It said, heard you've had a lot going on. We've had some extra, and we're glad to share it with you. And in it was $1,000. Paul says, this is what's been going on with you. Because he says, you don't know about this God that I'm proclaiming, but he has showered his, he has showered his goodness to you from day one. What has he done? He's brought the rain and he's brought the crops, and he's provided you with food and gladness. That's what he's saying. He's saying, this is the God I'm proclaiming to you, who has showered his goodness on you. You did not know who it was. It was he was anonymous to you until today. This God is the one who is to receive the glory. This one is the good news that he is now turning his face to you. What is he going to tell him about the gospel of Jesus, that God did not stand far off? That he was not this anonymous God sending out checks. But he stepped down into the life of his people, took on flesh in the person of Jesus, bore our sin that we might know forgiveness and healing and peace. In the words of Paul right here, that we might be freed from these vain things, that we might know the living God. And that's Paul's message to them. And the question for us is, what is it that captures our hearts and our imaginations? What grabs our hearts? Because the gospel says if you're going to follow Jesus, he would have every square inch of you. That the glory of God is to be the thing that is to capture 
every part of your life, that there is nothing over which Jesus doesn't say, in the words of Abraham Kuyper, this is mine. This is mine. Now, maybe you've got a long history of going to church, and you, you intellectually know this. Okay, you've signed off on it. This is, this is your theology about the glory of God. You're intellectually convinced. Maybe for some of us, though, it requires something a little bit different this morning. What, what does it take for us to have the act of imagination, to imagine a life fully consumed with the glory of God? Not simply something that we sign off on as correct doctrine, but that it would become something so beautiful, so central, so weighty for us that God's glory really would be the thing at the center of life for us. Because we're all embracing one thing or another. Most of us are embracing many things, spending our affections and our hearts, chasing after good things that we have turned into ultimate things, looking for glory, but looking at it and looking for it away from God. So if we grasp onto this, what's it going to mean for us to live for God's glory? Well, it means this simply, to say, my life is about this. My life is now about following God, about knowing Jesus, and seeing all the disparate parts of my life suddenly find their focus in Him. My life is going to be about this. And therefore, it means there can be no rivals. And that's what the Lystrans come to realize, is they're, they're ready to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, misunderstanding who they are. And then what happens in the next verse, by the time you get up to verses 19 and 20, they're ready to stone them. Like, first they thought they were gods, and then they're ready to kill them. And in, the, in between what's happened, verse 19, these opponents of Paul's have shown up in town and turned the crowds against them, and now the crowds are picking up rocks to kill them. Because surely one of the things the Lystrans came to realize is that what Paul and Barnabas are preaching doesn't fit nicely in with our worldview. It turns everything on its head. It means no more Zeus. It means no more Hermes. It means tear down the altar to Zeus in the middle of our town. It means life is now supposed to be oriented around this one true living God. And they'll have none of it. They pick up rocks. They stone Paul. They leave him for dead. They found they couldn't simply fit him into the pantheon, but they'd found a God who would have no rivals. Now, what's that going to mean for us if we really embrace this in our lives? Okay, we're going to need to quit our jobs. We're going to need to go to seminary, get well-trained, go be... You have two choices. You can be a pastor, or you can go be a missionary somewhere else. If you're, going to, if you're going to make him the center of your life, right? Well, you might get that impression if you read this. Like Paul, he was a missionary. Barnabas was a missionary. The book of Acts is full of missionaries. One of the things that it is in the text more subtly that it's easy to pass over, remember what Paul does when he gets to the end of his journey and then makes his way back, and he goes back to every city that he's been to to encourage the new believers there. What's he done? He's formed churches in all of these towns, local groups of people, bodies of believers who are going to follow Jesus right there in the middle of their real life, their real profession, in the midst of their family and all their relationships. They're going to make the goodness and presence of Jesus, his kingdom known right there. So what does it mean to put Jesus at the center? It doesn't mean that you're going to run off and be, as uh, friends of my parents once said when I went into college ministry, it doesn't mean you're going to go be a professional Christian. <laughs> the goodness of God is that he brings us in the middle of our real lives right now into his mission wherever he's already put us. In the midst of your school and your work and your family. 
runs deeper than simply changing our profession. But it means changing everything about us as we follow Jesus. That brings both freedom and gravity to our lives. Okay? A freedom now that Jesus has come in. And we can now see clearly, what is the thing that I'm supposed to pursue? The honor and glory of Jesus. But it brings up certain gravity too. Our lives are to be about that. What's that going to look like for you? I'll give you a couple examples. Maybe if you're a student. Some of us are students. Some of us have been and some of us will be. That means that right now your life is to center on the glory of God. That's what you are about. That's what you're supposed to be about. And that means it brings in a certain, we talked about the freedom, brings in freedom for you because now it means, okay, William and Mary students desperately need to hear this, your grades no longer define who you are. Now you're smiling, but you don't really believe that. Keep chewing on it. Your lives no longer, or your grades no longer define who you are. They're no longer a means to an end, simply academic honor or career aspirations. No longer defines who you are. Brings you freedom, but it also, it also does bring gravity. If you're a student following Jesus, then your grades and your social life and everything else in the middle of your life right now really does matter. It really does have weight. What would it mean for you to begin to look at your studies as the flannel board on which you're living out a life of the glory of God? How would that transform that incredibly boring class? How would that transform your diligence in study? How would that transform your social life? To suddenly think my social life is not simply about looking cool, being cool. It's not simply about having my social needs met. It's not simply about having fun while I'm here. But God has put relationships in my life for his glory. And he calls me to step into them, to point others to the glory of God and let them see the glory and beauty of the gospel. What would it mean to really think that as you stepped into your friendships on campus? Or plug, plug in your place in life. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your retirement. If you're retired, you look around, and you see a world of people that re- retirement for them equals we've finally gotten here. We put in all the hard work, and now it is time to sit back and enjoy life. The golden years, right? And life is meant to be enjoyed. It's a good gift from God. But the enjoyment of that can never be the center of your life. What's it going to mean for you at this season in your life to follow God with all that you have, to use the time that's now at your disposal that you've never had before, to use the money, to use all the resources that God's given you to continue to step into following him in his kingdom because there is no retiring from the kingdom of God. What would it mean for you? And then lastly... One thing that strikes me is Paul points again, as he's always quick to do, he never hides this fact, that if you're going to pursue the glory of another, if you're going to pursue the glory of God, that it's going to bring a measure of suffering into your life. Look at verses 2 through 6 when he's preaching what happens. Opponents come in and begin to poison the minds of the people against him. They find out about the plots and the threats, and they go on to the next town, and they catch up to him in Lystra. Following the Jesus faithfully for Paul meant that he's stoned in Lystra proclaiming the gospel. I think what's interesting about this, these, these places that we just read about today, uh, in Lystra in particular, this is where Timothy is from. If you're familiar with First and Second Timothy, two books in the New Testament, Timothy, Timothy was a younger apprentice of Paul's, and he met Timothy here. 
This is his hometown. Listen to what he says to Timothy by way of encouragement in 2 Timothy 3. He's writing to Timothy. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And that's his message to the churches. Look in verse 22 as he goes back to each of these churches to encourage them. What's one of the things that he tells them? 21 and 22, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. says, if you follow the glory of God, it is going to bring a measure of suffering into your life. But what Paul's life shows so clearly, and the book of Acts, I think, shows so clearly, is that it is so worth it. Because what happens for Paul as he steps into this? He sees people's lives being transformed. He sees the gospel of God going forward. He sees a world being transformed as God is reconciling people from every tongue and tribe and nation to himself remaking humanity and what it was meant to be, bringing healing and life that will last. He sees that. And that's what he tells his home church in Antioch about. Look at the last couple of verses. Verse 27, when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. He tells them the stories of God's goodness showing up in people's lives and you know that one of the stories he told was about this crippled man that started everything off in Lystra. Look with me back at verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. You know, it's interesting about the Greek word that's used there for seeing that he had faith to be made well. Literally means he had faith to be saved. Because that term in Greek, saved, has, has an all-encompassing reality to it. We see that manifested in his physical body that he is healed. And we see Paul looking at him and seeing that he has faith in the Jesus whom he is proclaiming. What does he look when he sees that man? He sees a man whose life is being transformed. Someone who had been following Zeus and, a, and Hermes now turning from vain things to the living God. He sees life being transformed. And that's what he comes back to tell his home church about. The gospel is going forward. God is doing amazing things. He is bringing worshipers to him who would live in his glory. That they might spend lives glorifying God and enjoying him forever. And I see that happening in our lives too and in your lives. I had one of those conversations this week. For someone just in the past two weeks, the penny dropped. Going to church, following Jesus for a long time, and suddenly saw the goodness and the beauty of the gospel in large neon letters like never before. Transforming this person's relationship with their children, with their spouse. Looking at all of life, it was beautiful. Those are the stories that Paul tells. What does it point us to? 
points us to our God and his son Jesus who came that we might have life and that we might spend our lives well now for the glory of our God. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would capture our hearts and capture our imagination, capture our minds, that we might see your glory, that we might see your beauty, and that we might live lives responding to that, pointing to that, centered on that. Would you teach us to see every area of our life, every square inch in relationship to you? Would you open up our eyes, even tomorrow morning as we step into whatever work you've given us for the week, would we see that you are there and that you would be honored there and that it is an opportunity to glorify you? Would you so capture our lives? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.